All right, if you need a Bible this morning, please raise your hand. Ushers, if you could get that to them. Um, if you need a pen, uh, raise up a couple fingers and the ushers will get that to you as well. Well, as you know, we're in the middle of a series that we've called Doubt in the Storm. And in this series, we've been specifically dealing with um, suffering, all sorts of different kind of suffering, um, and going through storms in life and struggling with the feelings that God doesn't even care in the midst of these storms. And we've been focusing on how it is in a practical way, how do we hang on for dear life in those times. And to do this, we've been looking at different stories uh, in the Gospels of Jesus interacting with different people. And uh, we've been trying to learn from those stories. Well, today we have one more story, and uh, it will be the last story of the series, I believe, unless something changes. Um, And this story is a very unique one um, that I hope we can learn something from. And I really do wish we had more time to break it down and kind of tear it apart, maybe take it into two weeks, but we don't have that time. And so we're going to have to cover the whole story this week. But today we're going to be talking about a man by the name of John the Baptist. Now, John was a very interesting man. Not only did he have an interesting name, it's weird to be called John the Baptist, not John the Lutheran or John the Methodist, he was John the Baptist. And uh, not only did he have an interesting name, but he had a very interesting life. And something about John the Baptist that has always really stood out to me is that Jesus himself, at some point in his ministry, said these words. He said, of any man ever born of a woman, none is greater than John the Baptist. Now, what's the point of that? The point is, is that John was an incredible man of God. Incredible man of God. And honestly... His incredibleness starts all the way back to the moment he was conceived in his mother's womb. And many of you guys know the story. A couple by the name of Zechariah and Elizabeth, um, they lived in the nation of Israel. Zechariah was a priest, and these two were incredibly godly people. They were righteous in the sight of God. But something about this couple was that Elizabeth was barren. She could not have kids. And she could not have kids her entire life. And they had grown old together. And she had lived with the shame of that her entire life. In that day and age, it was a very embarrassing thing to have to live through. But all that was about to change because one day, while Zachariah was in the temple doing his priestly duties, um, an angel shows up out of nowhere. I mean, completely freaks him out, completely scares the wits out of him. But this angel says this to him He says, um, Do not be afraid, Zachariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you're going to give him the name John. And he will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now I want you to take notice of some of these things. These are incredible things to be told about your child. I mean, as a parent, you could not ask for anything better than that. And a lot of times, we parents, we like to brag about our children. We're like, oh my word, my little Billy, he's only two years old, and he was playing with Legos, and he constructed this beautiful little building. I didn't help. He's going to be an engineer. I mean, he is just outstanding. (laughs) My little Billy, he said, 
you know, a full sentence at the age of one. It's incredible. He was walking at two months. I mean, it was just awesome, and we love to brag about that stuff. And as great as those things might be, nothing could compare to what this angel told Zechariah. I mean, he said, John, he says, Zechariah, your son John is going to be great in the sight of the Lord. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even at birth. I mean, nobody has ever experienced that, but John did. He says he's going to go on before the Lord. In other words, he's going to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ himself. And he will prepare people and make them ready to meet the Lord. Such an awesome thing. Imagine being told that as a parent. This is what your son is going to do. He's going to be an amazing man, greatly used by God. And that is essentially what Gabriel is telling Zechariah. Now, Zechariah honestly had a really hard time believing this. I mean, both he and Elizabeth are really old. And so he's just like, how in the world is this even going to happen? And, and, and he's not even sure it's possible. So he questions Gabriel. And the only reason I mention this is because I think it's funny. Um, you know how it is, is that men, we can call ourselves old all the time. Like, man, he's as old as the hills. He's an old guy. He's my old man and blah, blah, blah. We say old all the time when it comes to guys. But we're not allowed to say that with women, are we? I mean, that's just off limits. You never call a woman old. Well, apparently that was in practice way back in the time of Zechariah because look at what he tells the angel. Zechariah asked the angel, he goes, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. And my wife is well along in years. Which is very gentle in that. I love that. Well, let's fast forward quickly so we can eventually get to our story. John is finally born, and he grows up, and there's a very interesting verse that tells us a little bit about him. Check this out in Luke. It says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. So once John grows up, he goes out, and he lives in the desert, in the wide open spaces of the desert. And something interesting while living in the desert was what he ate and what he wore. Okay, check out his wardrobe and his meal plan. Mark says, John wore clothing made of camel's hair. Anybody ever worn camel hair clothing? No? Okay. And with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. Anybody ever tried locusts before? Nope. nope. Nobody. All three servants. One guy in the back I saw. Did you really try locusts? Is it? Awesome. Can you just stick with one or do you have to keep having more? Is it like potato chips? One was good. One was good. <laughs> Now, why in the world would someone go out and live in the desert? Well, that's a great question. The answer is just very simple. John was born with a purpose, for a purpose. And that purpose was to prepare the way for Jesus, prepare the way for the Son of God to come into this earth. And he had a job to do. And God had much to teach him. So honestly, we can see that this time in the desert really is a huge classroom or training ground for John the Baptist. He had to learn the entire Old Testament. He had to learn the law. He had to learn the prophecies, the things that he was going to be asked to do to fulfill those prophecies. And the desert was where God taught him all this stuff and trained him up to, for the job that he was going to be asked to do until he was fully prepared for that. He could not be distracted by the things of this world, so he was sent out into the desert. But eventually the training comes to an end. And finally, one day, he makes his public entrance into the nation of Israel, and by doing so, he fulfills this prophecy in Isaiah. Let me show it to you. Mark chapter 1. Um, let's start at verse 2. It says, It is written in Isaiah the prophet, <coughs> the prophet, sorry about that, 
I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John, at his appointed time, begins his public ministry and he starts preaching a baptism of repentance and then he baptizes people, telling people to change their mind as to how they they perceive God is working. That's what repentance is. It's really adjusting your thinking to what is true. And, And here's what he went around saying. In Luke it says, John answered them all. He says, I baptize you with water. But one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not even worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John was proclaiming that someone was going to come after him that was so much more important, that was so much more powerful than he. And we all know that person to be, who was it? Jesus, exactly. Remember, we learned from Gabriel that he was the forerunner to Jesus Christ himself. His job was to prepare the people for Jesus' ministry. And that's exactly what he's doing. Now, it was during that time that while John was going about his ministry, that Jesus shows up on the scene. And Jesus actually shows up to one of John's baptism meetings by the River Jordan. And to fulfill Scripture, Jesus tells John to baptism and, and baptize him. And so that's what he does. And Scripture says this, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son." whom I love, with you I am well pleased. As John was raising Jesus up out of the water, heaven was torn open and the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And this voice spoke out loud and clear for all to hear, saying, You are my Son in whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Now, this is a very important detail for John. And here's why I say that. Let me show you a passage in the book of of John. Sorry. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. And he told me this. The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen it, and I testify that this is the Son of God. What's interesting to me is that John really didn't know who this one coming after him was. He wasn't for sure who this more powerful one was. But at some point, God told John, he says, listen, John, you're going to be going around doing your thing, doing your baptizing, preaching the message that I've given you to do. But one day, my son is going to show up And you're going to baptize him. And when you baptize him, something amazing is going to happen. 
the the heavens are going to be opened up and a dove is going to come and land on him. And that's going to be the Holy Spirit upon him. And that's how you're going to know that this is the promised Messiah. That will be a sign that he is the Son of God. And you know what? John experiences that. And John gives testimony here. He goes, I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. I mean, these are incredibly powerful words. John is declaring the authenticity of Jesus Christ right here. He knows that Jesus is Lord and that he's the Son of God because of what all God has told him and what he experienced. And here's the proof he needed. Okay, is everybody with me so far? All right, let's keep moving. It's at this point that Jesus' ministry begins to truly take place. It kind of, in a sense, begins. And now, more people are switching from following John to following Jesus. They're leaving John to go be with Jesus. John's crowd is getting smaller, and Jesus' crowd is getting bigger. And you'd kind of think that John might be a little upset about this, or a little jealous about this, but he isn't. He sees it as a good thing. Actually, John is all for this. We see in Scripture, it says, to this John replied, Listen, a man can receive only what's given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And it's now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. John is both clearly satisfied and excited that Jesus has finally shown up. The groom has arrived. The one whom he was sent to prepare the way for has shown up on the scene, and man, it makes his heart so glad. He is fulfilling what he was born to do. And you know it's true, isn't it? When we're fulfilling the ministry that God has called us to do, there's just such great joy. We just experience such great and utter joy, and that's what John is experiencing. When God has given us a job that we're, and we're fulfilling that job, man, it's such a great feeling of purpose, and it's awesome. <clears throat> and I think the reason is, is that we're seeing the unseen kingdom of God at work all around us, and we're getting the awesome privilege to interact with it. And that's what John is feeling here. Great joy. He's interacting with the kingdom of God and he's preparing the way for the Son of God to come and do his mighty work to set creation right again. And it's awesome. And he's feeling complete and utter joy. But all that was about to change. John's life was about to take a completely different direction. And the way that happens is the king of Israel at that time was a guy by the name of Herod, King Herod. And King Herod was an incredibly wicked man, very wicked guy. But King Herod goes down to Rome to visit his brother, and he falls in love with his brother's wife. Her name is Herodias. He falls in love with her, and so much so she falls in love with him that he takes her to be his wife. Now, obviously, that is wrong in the sight of God. Well, guess who speaks up about it? John the Baptist. He comes to Herod, and he says, Herod, you can't do that. You can't do that. That is wrong in the eyes of God. Well, both King Herod and Herodias didn't like that. So in their anger, they arrested John, and it says in Scripture that they bound him and they put him into prison. They bound him 
and they put him into prison. Now, I'm pretty sure, guys, that he wasn't put into a prison like we see nowadays. This is an actual picture of a prison in Austria. Looks better than most of our houses, doesn't it? It looks pretty sweet. It was more like this that he was thrown into, a dungeon. Apparently, history tells us that he was taken down to the dungeons of some little spot. It was by the Dead Sea, but King Herod's dungeons. It was a prison. And that's where he was put. Now, can you imagine, guys, being a guy who lived out in the desert in the open spaces, seeing the great, beautiful sky at night and the sky during the day and the wind in your hair, suddenly to be thrown into this dungeon? Not only that, but going from ministering to thousands of people and leading people into repentance. God is, is using you to prepare the way for his son. And, and you're just experiencing great times of great ministry. And suddenly, you're thrown into one of these. Ministry, in a sense, comes to a screeching halt. And John gets bound and thrown into prison. And once again, I've been asking throughout the series for you to imagine, to put on your uh, uh, imagination here and to think what would they have been feeling? What, what would John have been experiencing here? What would have been the thoughts that have been going through his mind? And I want to ask you, what do you think John felt when suddenly he was thrown into prison? Any suggestions? Those are excellent. What? Why is this happening? What else? God, why did you abandon me? What else? Doubt. Doubt. What else? Fear. Fear. One more. What did I do? What did I do? Exactly. I mean, what did I do wrong? I just spoke truth, and here I am. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that possibly John, you know, when he got thrown into prison, do you think that there was a part of his mind that was thinking, this is going to be pretty short-lived? I mean, I'm not going to be here for long. Do you think he thought that? Okay. I personally think that that thought probably crossed his mind. That he's probably like, well, this probably isn't going to last for long because I'm a pretty great guy. I mean, my ministry is very, very, very important. And so I get thrown in prison, I'm pretty sure God's going to rescue me. And I don't know how he's going to do it, but he may have an angel just suddenly show up and whoosh, you know, push the guards back, whoosh, open the door and break my shackle, shackles and come and lead me out. He may do that. Or he may work in Herod's heart in such a way that Herod comes into my, my cell, falls down to his knees and says, John, you were right. I sinned against God. Forgive me for putting you into prison. Here, I'll release you. Get back to your ministry. I'm sure those thoughts were running through John's mind. But day after day, and night after night, and week after week, and month after month, he remains in this cold, dark, damp dungeon, bound hand and foot for doing nothing but speaking truth. And after a period of time, Scripture does not tell us how long, John's faith begins to waver. And John begins to doubt. And he begins to have some very dark days. And in those dark days, his thoughts begin to get all messed up. And you know, in saying that, that's something we need to be very careful of. In our times of darkness, we had better learn how to guard our thoughts. Because the enemy comes in full force to mess those thoughts up. And John's thinking is kind of a mess. 
And bit by bit, he, he begins to take his eyes off the unseen reality of God and he starts to focus on the seen world around him. And let me tell you, the seen world around him doesn't look that great. Here he is, locked up in a dark dungeon, chained to a wall, freedom taken away, hope of escaping is all but gone, Herod hates him and is angry at him and wants him to, to die, wants him dead. Herodias can't stand him and she wants him dead. Things are looking pretty bleak for John. The seen world around him wasn't looking good. And you know, to make matters worse, this Jesus guy isn't doing what he expected Jesus to do. You see, I think John expected Jesus to come in and clean out just like everybody else thought that the Messiah would do. He, he thought Jesus would come in and he would set himself up as king, get rid of the Roman pagan rule, wipe out all the evil all around, including Herod and Herodias, wipe it out and set up his glorious kingdom here on earth. When John came to prepare the way for Jesus, that essentially is what he thought he was preparing for. And that wasn't happening. And so he begins to question. God, what, what are you doing? This, is, this isn't what I had planned. This isn't what we had arranged. I, why aren't you doing what I thought you were going to do? And this really messes with John. And you know, it's kind of true, isn't it? In the darkness of suffering, we often question the actions of God. We actually have the gall to question the actions of God. And that's what suffering can do in us if we're not careful. And that's what's happening to John. I mean, the enemy is coming against John in a big way here, and he's storing up all sorts of questions and doubt. So much so that John eventually comes to the point where he questions the authenticity of Jesus. What if this Jesus guy isn't the one we've been waiting for? What if Jesus isn't the one? What what if we're supposed to be waiting for someone else? What if I got it completely wrong? And so this is what he does. Matthew 11, it says, When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now notice what it says there. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing. Do you catch that? You see, Jesus wasn't doing what he thought Jesus should be doing. He questions the actions of Jesus, which makes him really wonder if Jesus is the one that they've been waiting for after all. Well, John decides to send a couple of his disciples to go ask Jesus that question that just keeps plaguing him. Are you the one who was to come? Or did I get it all wrong and we're supposed to wait for somebody else? I want to stop here for a second. And I want to ask you some questions because I want you to see how far John's thinking has, has gone downhill. And I'm going to ask you these questions and I want you to answer them out loud. Question number one. Who was it that told John that Jesus was the coming Messiah? Who told John that? God did, exactly. Now, number two. How did God tell him that he can be sure it was him? The dove. He says, when you baptize him, the Spirit will come upon him in the form of a dove. Now let me ask you this. Did that happen to Jesus? Did John witness that? Yes. How often 
does one see the heavens being torn open and a dove flying down and landing on someone's shoulder right after they've been baptized? <laughs> Once. I've had a lot of baptisms up here and I've baptized a lot of people and I've not so much as seen a sparrow come and land on someone's shoulder. <laughs> but that happens for John. John told him it was going to happen and it happened. He experienced it. So was John convinced then that Jesus was the one? Yes. Yes, he was. In fact, he even testifies. I mean, how much more proof could John have? But here he is in the place of despondency, questioning everything. And you know, I know this might not be right or not, but that somehow encourages me. Because if John, John the Baptist, the one who Jesus says, none is greater born of woman than John. If even John has times of doubt in his life, then you know what? I can understand why I have doubt in my life. I mean, if we have doubt in our life, the reality is we're in good company. People far greater than you and me have experienced it in their life too. Now, we shouldn't have it, but we're in good company. And I don't know, I think somehow every one of us have been through similar experiences that John, I mean, where God has done some pretty amazing things in our life, pretty special things. He's used us for great and mighty things. He's used us to change people's lives. And we're walking with Him and we're working with Him and we're being used by Him. And God is so real and He's so close and He's, he's so tangible that you feel like you could almost touch Him. But all of a sudden, we find ourselves in a situation where we get sidelined. We get benched. We're, we're sick in bed. Our marriage is suffering and consuming every moment and every thought. Our children are battling addictions. We've lost a loved one, and, and you just can't operate in life. I mean, you name it. There's a myriad of different life experiences that we could go through, go through that could literally sideline us. And we're not in the limelight anymore serving God like we used to. And in our storm of suffering, we find ourselves in a prison with our feet and our hands bound. Everything we once were doing no longer happens, and it shatters our existence. And it messes with our identity. And suddenly we find ourselves questioning everything God has done for us and everything God has shown us. <clears throat> and we're like, God... Was that even really you? Was that you working in my life or wasn't it? Was it just coincidence? Did a dove just happen to land on, on his shoulder and I got it completely wrong? And we question God and everything that he's done in our life, we wonder, was it really him? And let me tell you, that's a dark, dark place to be. And we've all been there. And some of us might even be there right now. You know exactly how John is feeling. But here's what I want us to see, because here's where I think we tend to make our mistake. We so often put the God of this universe into our nice little tidy box. And we only allow him to operate within our parameters. And you know when he doesn't fit in our box and he doesn't abide by our little parameters, he moves outside of our box... We don't know what to do. And it messes with us. Well, listen, Whitestone, and I need you to hear this. 
The God of this universe doesn't fit into any size box. So don't try to put him there. Amen? Don't try to put him there. And you know, we have a tendency to think that God really needs us to do his work. He really can't accomplish anything without us. And that's what we think. And so when we do get sidelined because of the storms in our life, we think God's making a horrible mistake. And we question his wisdom and we question his goodness. We don't see the whole picture of God. We don't see the great counsel of God. And so in our ignorance, we question him. And that's where John is at. John had put God into a nice little tiny box and placed all these expectations on on Jesus and what he thought Jesus should do. And John, not seeing the whole picture of God's plan, started to doubt. And he's questioning everything he heard, questioning everything he has done. And so he sends his disciples to ask Jesus the question, are you really the one that was to come? Or should we be waiting for someone else? And I love what Jesus says. Jesus replied to John's disciples, He says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. And I don't know about you, but I just find that to be so cool. Because Jesus could have said, when they asked him if he was the one, he could have said, of course I'm the one. Yes, I'm the promised Messiah. Now go back and tell John to stop doubting and just believe me. He could have said that. He had every right to. But he doesn't. Jesus' answer to John's disciples was go back and, and tell John what I'm doing. You don't even have to say, tell him what I'm saying. Just tell him what I'm doing. You don't have to tell him who I'm claiming to be. Just tell him what is happening. And what's happening The blind are receiving sight. The kingdom of darkness is being plundered. The lame are walking. Those with leprosy are being cured. The kingdom of darkness is being plundered. The deaf are hearing. The dead are being raised to life. The kingdom of darkness is being pushed back and plundered. And the good news is being preached to the poor, to the lowdown, the needy, the nobodies, the spiritual zeros. The good news is being preached to them and the kingdom of darkness is being pushed back. Go back and tell him that. And that's going to be the only proof he needs. Because only the Son of God can do those things. And we could spend a ton of time unpacking that right there. But that's what he sends the message back to John. And then Jesus says this. He says this to John's disciples, and I want us to focus on this. We're going to close with this. He said, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Now that's a very interesting statement, and it's incredibly powerful. But I feel like Jesus is telling John and the rest of us, listen, I know you don't understand me. I know you don't understand what I'm doing. And I know that you're sitting there in your prison, in your sickness, in your marriage, in your ugly circumstances, and you're questioning everything God has told you and everything God has shown you. 
Because I know sitting in your prison for this long was a twist in the road you didn't see coming. But John, but Whitestone, God is working. God's kingdom is advancing. And the kingdom of darkness is being plundered day in and day out. So don't let what I'm doing cause you to fall away. Now, hang in there. Don't let go. Blessed is the man who does, even when you don't understand it. Even when it doesn't make sense. Focus on the unseen reality of God and His kingdom. Don't look at the wind. Don't look at the waves. You keep your eyes focused on me. And in the end, you will understand. But right now, you're just going to have to trust me. You're just going to have to trust me. And so why don't I say that to us right now? Right now, we're just going to have to trust him. Amen? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for this story. And I know many of us feel like John right now. We've been sidelined. We're stuck. What we feel like is in a prison. And we've been there for a long time. God, the enemy has been doing a number on our thoughts and on our thinking, causing us to question what you have done in our lives and question what you have told us. And we begin to doubt everything. But God, I pray that you would give us the courage and the ability to hang on. That even though we can't see what's happening, we don't understand what you're doing, we might be able to set our eyes on you, the author and finisher of our faith. And may we trust you in the midst of our storm. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I don't know if you guys have noticed or not, but it seems like the storms in our life, they're like the story today. They're like little prisons. We get bound hand and foot and thrown into a prison. And in our storms, we look out at what's going on out here and like, man, I wish I could be involved in that, but I'm chained to this. And I wish I could do that, but I'm chained to this. And we see our friends all together having a blast doing this together, and I'm chained to this. And it's easy in that time to just start to question God and to question what He's doing and to doubt that He ever did anything in your life. And at that point, when that begins to happen, you'll notice that the enemy will come up and set up shop in your prison. He'll set his office right up there in your prison. And he'll whisper his little lies to you. And he'll whisper the suggestions of like, God doesn't care. God doesn't help you. God doesn't really care about your future or anything. And at, the, at those moments, I don't know if you're like me, but it's very hard to pray. It's hard to pray because you're questioning everything. But I've learned a little secret. I don't know if this will help you or not. But in those times where it just seems like it's so hard to pray, I go back to the Lord's Prayer. And there's a little spot in the Lord's Prayer where he says, May your kingdom come, and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And sometimes that's all I pray. Sometimes all I say is, God, may your kingdom come, and your will be done in my prison as it is in heaven. 
And you know when you do that, you're inviting God to work in your prison. You're inviting his action to come into your prison. And when God begins to work in your prison, guess who has to get out? The enemy. He has to pull up his office and move out. So I encourage you to do that. You know, it's funny when the enemy is in your prison, it's a cold, dark, gloomy dungeon. But when God's activity and God's action begins to set up shop in your prison, it's the warmest, most beautiful place of light in the universe because God is there. And so may God be active in your storm. May God be active in your prison, no matter what it is. But I encourage you, you need to invite him into it. Invite him in. Guys, I love you so very, very much. Have an awesome week, and we'll see you next Sunday.